power of God is compared to a thunderstorm. Thunderstorms. Many of us were afraid of thunderstorms when we were young. Some of us might still be. The flashes of lightning and the rumbles of thunder and the rain driving into our windows. We sing about uh, how God's power is revealed in a thunderstorm in at least one song that I can think of. It's a devotional song. Every time I watch a storm, I know the awesome power of my Lord. I think it's a good image for God's power because a thunderstorm is both beautiful and fierce, both majestic and terrible. You can still drive out on AEDC Road and see the uh, damage that was caused by the tornado that some thunderstorms, I think about a year ago now, it was last winter, uh, spawned a tornado. And if you look out through there, trees snapped in half. I went out and visited a family in that area who endured that tornado. And I know you, you all know people out there. Some of you live out in that area. Some of you were directly affected by that storm. But they hunkered down in the center of the house and you know, it was almost like a direct hit. They said it felt as if the house was about to be pulled apart. Thunderstorm. Very powerful, beautiful, yet fearsome. In our text tonight, the, the power of God, we're told, can be seen, is revealed in a thunderstorm. In Psalm 29, a thunderstorm serves as a visible symbol of God's majestic, powerful voice. And I want us to read, starting at verse 3, down to verse 9. I want you to see how the psalmist puts this together. How he paints this mental image of how the voice of the Lord uh, can be heard in the roar of a thunderstorm. Watch this, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Psalm 29.7 The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Hadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare and in his temple all cry glory. This description would be even more powerful, I think, if we knew the geography of this region a little better. The psalmist invites us here to imagine this magnificent storm coming eastward from the Mediterranean Sea, making landfall to the north in the mountains of Lebanon, and then heading south to sweep through Israel from Syrian, Mount Hermon in the northern end to Kadesh at the southern end. And throughout, we get this common refrain of the voice of the Lord, hearing the voice of the Lord in the power of this great storm. 
The bigger picture is, Psalm 29 is declaring God's sovereignty over the created order, over all nature. Specifically here, His voice is powerful. We need to remember that it was by His voice that all things were created in the very beginning. In that description in Genesis chapter 1, we find God speaking things into existence. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. He says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and so on, and so forth in the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1. God has the ability to, by His voice, speak all of creation into existence. He he didn't even have to lift a finger to make all things. And in Psalm 29, we are reminded of His powerful voice. The psalm at the end pronounces God as king over all after it describes His power as seen in this mighty storm. In verse 10, we read, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And because of the power of our God, the psalmist reminds us that he is worthy of our exclusive worship. Go all the way back to verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, the psalmist says, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This is a psalm that is to cause us to be in awe of God and of who He is, of His mighty power, of His ability to, to create and control all the elements of nature. But what if I told you that some of the language in this psalm may have been borrowed from Canaanite religious practice? What if I told you that some of the terminology here may have been taken from the religious practice of Israel's pagan neighbors? What if I told you that archaeologists have determined that similar language that we see in this psalm and elsewhere was used to describe the storm god Baal before it was used to describe the one true and living God. I'm talking here about some discoveries that have been made in a city called Ugarit. It was a Canaanite coastal city in northern Syria and it has undergone extensive excavation since 1929. Now, while the archaeological remains of this city, Ugarit, are spectacular, the tablet discoveries are even more significant for our understanding of ancient Canaanite religion and culture. Early in the excavation, a house was discovered which is thought to have been the dwelling of the high priest of Baal. And several clay tablets were strewn across the floor, a collection which became known as the priest's library. There's a scholar who has this to say about this landmark discovery. He says, the most important component of this library was a collection of myths and epic poems, the only such collection preserved from Canaan. 
These provide us with considerable insight into the nature of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. There was El, the father of the gods, and their king. There was Baal, the storm and fertility deity, and the active ruler of the gods. There was Asherah. We see her name come up in the Old Testament scriptures. The wife of El, and the mother of the gods. And there was Anat, the sister of Baal, and the goddess of war. We see all of these figures in these in uh, these um, in these various tablets that were discovered in this city, he also says this scholar that the most significant texts are a series of tablets that feature Baal as their main character, and it's from these sources that we find descriptions of Baal that are very similar to the language that was used for the Lord in Psalm 29 and elsewhere in the Old Testament, including other psalms. For instance, in one of these texts, these Canaanite religious texts, we read this about Baal. About Baal. Seven lightnings he had, eight storehouses of thunder were the shafts of his lightnings. Elsewhere, Baal's voice is compared to thunder and he hurls lightning bolts as his spears. Additionally, there was a steel found near the temple of Baal at Ugarit, which shows Baal with a club in his right hand and what is probably a lightning bolt in his left Bearing a striking resemblance to these depictions of Baal is the description of the Lord in Psalm 29 as one, in our psalm tonight, as one who is sovereign over a thunderstorm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. We read that verse earlier, that's verse 3. Consider another example. Baal is often referred to as the rider of the clouds. And in Psalm 29, what do we get? The image is of the God of Israel who rides in on this powerful storm. So maybe this is unsettling to some of us. Maybe it even seems problematic that some of the language that we have in places like Psalm 29, used to describe our God, the one true and living God, might have been used originally to describe a a mythic God, a, a false god, an idol. What do we make of this? What do we do with this? Does admitting the possibility that the language here in Psalm 29 and maybe in other places might not be original, does that challenge the Bible's authority as the inspired word of God? Well, let me say a couple things about this. As we think about what we've read in Psalm 29, and as, we've, as we have considered what has been discovered about some of the origin of this language, let me say a couple things. First of all, we need to understand how special revelation works. We all acknowledge that God has revealed himself to us, not just generally in nature, but in a very special way in his word. He has shown us things that we could not know otherwise. We could never know that Jesus is his son, that Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins. You can't intuit that from looking at nature. You can know certain things about God. You can understand his power and his might by witnessing a thunderstorm, for instance, or some other act of nature, but you can't know everything that you need to know about God and his will for our lives by looking at nature. Thus, the need for special revelation. But have you ever considered how amazing it is, this concept, 
that God has revealed himself to us? That the almighty, eternal, holy God has decided to communicate to us in human language, using human figures of speech, in human ways that we can understand? You know, it's remarkable when you think about how God has decided to show himself to us in these very meager, limited forms of communication. And God has always revealed himself to us in terms and in ideas that are familiar, that are understandable. Think about all the imagery that is used throughout the Old Testament and the New. Think about the parables that Jesus would tell. Those parables included details from everyday life. People's hobbies and jobs that they could relate to and understand. And Jesus used those everyday elements to then connect to a deeper spiritual truth. God has always communicated with us in ways that we can, we can grasp and understand. He's always lowered himself to be available to us. The Bible is unique in character. I'm not questioning the Bible's veracity and authority as the inspired word of God, but the Bible generously borrows from the surrounding culture to effectively communicate with its audience. The Israelites would have been familiar with this language that was used of the gods, the false gods of their neighbors. They would have heard about how Baal had been described as one who had mastery over the elements of nature. And we know from reading our Old Testaments that they were often drawn towards Baal and the worship of the false gods of their neighbors, weren't they? I mean, they were pulled into idolatry and they often abandoned the exclusive worship of their God and they chased after false gods. So they knew about this language. They knew how Baal had been described. And so it shouldn't be a shock to us when we see language used in some other way, pulled in and used by God through his inspired writers to be used in a different way. And let me say this also, and this is really the, the big point of tonight. The psalm, we should see this psalm as having been designed to directly challenge the power that was traditionally ascribed to Baal. The Israelites' neighbors had long believed that Baal was the one who could control a storm, that he was the one who had mastery over nature. And the psalmist wants to say, no, that's not true. The psalmist says, Baal has had possession of that language long enough. Much too much time has passed by with people believing that Baal is the one who can control thunder and lightning and rain and storms. Much too much time has passed with people believing that there is such a, a, a being as Baal who can control the elements of nature. Let me tell you this, the psalmist says, God, the one true and living God, is the only one who deserves to be described in such terms. This psalm is a full frontal assault on Baal and on those who might follow him. This is like the written version of the, the big showdown that Elijah had with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Remember when Elijah went toe-to-toe with hundreds of prophets of Baal and they built an altar and he said, hey, whoever's God rains down fire first on this altar, that's, 
That's the real God. That's the true God. And the prophets of Baal, they begged their God to show himself. They danced around like fools for hours and nothing happened. And then it was Elijah's turn. And immediately after he prayed, fire came down and it consumed the altar and it consumed the water around the altar. There was no contest on that day. The psalmist wants, to, wants us to know there is no contest between Baal and God. And Baal didn't do any of these things, despite what you probably have heard. God is the one who has mastery over the elements of nature. God is the one who is the rider on the clouds. God is the one who is behind all of these, these uh, amazing acts that we see like thunderstorms. There is one who rides on the clouds. There is one who is enthroned above the flood. There is one who has mastery over all the elements of nature, but it ain't Baal. It ain't your measly storm god who doesn't even exist. It's God. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. You know, Paul does something similar to this in the book of Acts, chapter 17. When he gets to Athens... And he observes all of the different gods and idols that they worship. And he finds this altar with an inscription that says, To the unknown God. And as he begins to speak to the people at the Areopagus, this gathering place in town, he says, I noticed this altar with this inscription that says, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And he goes on. He says to them, you intuit that there is some unknown God out there. You know in your heart that there is a God above all the other gods. You don't know exactly who he is, but you know he exists what Paul does here, he, sa he says, let me tell you exactly who he is. Let me identify him for you. You know he's out there, but you don't know anything about it. I'm going to define him for your sake. The psalmist here borrows this language, yes, that had been traditionally claimed by pagan neighbors of Israel to describe Baal, but it's belonged to Baal long enough. And God wants to borrow this language so that it can rightfully be ascribed to Him. It is the voice of the Lord who is over the waters. It is our God of glory who thunders. It is the Lord who is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So, when we consider such things, you know, when we allow people like the archaeologists to speak, and they reveal to us what they found, it doesn't, it doesn't put what the Bible says in, into question. Uh, it shouldn't be seen as unsettling or problematic to us. If anything, knowing the backstory here, knowing the origin of some of this language, I think it makes the psalm even more powerful. I think the psalm packs an even greater punch when you know that this language was redeemed, was stolen from Canaanite religion to then be ascribed to the God, our God, 
who actually deserves it. The one who actually did create all things. It's an assault on Baal and the power that he supposedly possessed. The psalmist says no more. This language will no more be used to describe a false god like Baal. It belongs to the one true God. The Israelites, they were constantly feeling the tug of idolatry. And it is well documented. All the times that they went astray, that they left their first love, that they fell away from the exclusive worship of the one true God and began dabbling in idolatry. Make no mistake, the tug of idolatry is very strong for us today. Very strong. We are pulled into the, these idolatrous notions that the gods of this world are going to provide for us joy and fulfillment and hope and peace. And I think what this psalm can remind us is it's a lie that only the one true and living God, only our God, can do a job like that. So tonight, if you need to know this God, if you need to come and humble yourself before this God and confess the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and be baptized into that beautiful name so that your sins can be washed away, or if you need to renew your devotion to God on this night, we can lift you up in prayer. We can uh, surround you in support and encouragement. Maybe you have a spiritual need that you need to come and make known, or maybe you need to decide to follow Jesus for the very first time. We can help you do that right now as we stand and sing.